Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vagar Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Joining us are Byron Callen of the independent Washington research firm, Capital Alpha Partners, and Todd Harrison of the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Uh, He has issued part one of his multi-part series uh, that is focusing on joint all-domain command and control. Uh, His piece, Battle Networks and the Future Force, is out. And as I said, this first uh, segment deals with uh, the framework for debate, obviously one of the most important investments uh, that the United States wants to make to better connect uh, its existing forces to be a force multiplier uh, in the future, not something necessarily new, but a lot of very, very important questions that come uh, of that. Byron and Todd also will be talking about the infrastructure measure that's uh, before the Senate. Uh, That is uh, a a moving target at this point, as well as a look ahead to the week, which Byron always uh, provides us, and that'll be a little bit later in the program. Guys, thanks very much for joining us. Great to be here, Bugga. Good to be back. Uh, an absolute pleasure. Byron, it was uh, terrific seeing you in person at Navy League uh, last week. Todd, we still have to figure out a way to actually see you in person, but I'm, uh, I have seen you on various Zoom uh, things, and I have to say both of you look marvelous uh, for, for what it's worth. Uh, before we get started, our global coverage is sponsored by Leonardo DRS. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control that we're talking about uh, now. Um, Certainly an interesting uh, program. John Hyten, the vice chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, speaking at at NDIA a couple of weeks ago, talked about the importance of JADC2 in the wake of the war game that was lost. How do we think uh, uh, it was a defensive Taiwan scenario and China apparently bested U.S. forces? This was uh, a future war game, right? So it wasn't something immediate. And um, I always have to caveat this. John Hyten made perfectly clear we can continue to deter uh, China. The issue is, unless we make changes, their future capabilities will such that are, uh, will be problematic. But he did make the case for rethinking uh, operations, rethinking capabilities so that uh, we maintain the edge. Todd, uh, start us off with your uh, report. Battle networks aren't necessarily new. They're, you do a, a great job, actually, and, and a terrific job, by the way, in your hot off the computer report. There are links on everything. So if you, you want to see uh, the strike reconnaissance, uh, reconnaissance strike concept from the right, right. You, you tie into all of these documents in, in real time. I thought it was great that even on the TB29X, uh, you know, thin line sonar, you had a link on it so that somebody could click on it. So that was, that was really great. You didn't have to search uh, for it separately. But to talk to us about the big questions. Folks agree we need to do some form of a joint all domain command and control. The question is how we go about doing it uh, and, and what is it, right? I mean, as, as one senior person who's uh, now in the administration told me, the question is, what's the problems, what are the problems we need to solve? From your standpoint, what does this debate need to look like? Yeah, I mean, and I think there's broad agreement uh, on the need for better integrated command and control of our forces, integrated battle networks, broad agreement on that, and broad agreement that this is a key enabler uh, that we can't go without in the future. And if we're going to be able to deter, you know, adversaries going forward, uh, our battle networks are kind of the key to that, you know, conventional deterrence. So, you know, I, I think where we are right now is we've got a lot of disjointed efforts going on within the department. 
and the language that's being used to communicate both within DOD among the services and with Congress has gotten really confusing. And you know what what is breaking down here, and one of the reasons you see Congress doing things like slashing the budget for ABMS like they did last year, uh, is that it's not clear what these programs are actually building, what they're producing. Uh, and so what I wanted to do with this paper is just try to lay out a lexicon uh, so that we can talk about it. You know, the battle network is not just a, a cyber thing. It's not just communications. Uh, I lay out five different elements that are part of making up a battle network. Uh, and so I think, you know, step one is all of these disjointed efforts within DOD. They've got to come together and define exactly what piece parts are they building of this future battle network. Uh, and then step two uh, is, you know, talking to each other to figure out how they're going to work together. And most importantly, how are all of these piece parts of the battle network or the future going to work with our existing systems? Because we can't have a battle network or set of networks in the future that don't, you know, communicate back with our, our existing platforms and payloads and sensors. Uh, it's got to be backward compatible because for the next 10, 20 years, the vast majority of the equipment that we have in our force is going to be stuff that's in our inventory today. Uh, so I think, you know, those are some of the key things that they've got to really get right at this point uh, before they start moving forward. And I should point out to our audience, uh, when we started our JADC2 uh, series, uh, you were kind enough to join us, as was uh, Chris Doherty of CNAS and, and Brian Clark of uh, the Hudson uh, Institute, where we talked about some of the mechanical issues, right? I mean, everybody is kind of doing their own thing. I want to plumb a little bit deeper on that. But Byron, uh, every week you uh, put a, uh, every Sunday you put a, a week ahead. Uh, what uh, your clients uh, and the community should be focused on. And then another note out about sort of the news you may have missed last week because the focus was on Navy League. One was um, an important hypersonics uh, contract. The other one uh, was a great piece by uh, the Armed Forces Communications uh, Electronics Association, AFCIA, that was on JADC2 as well. Give us your JADC2 points because um, there is an emerging consensus that this is important but we're not really going about it the right way. Well, it is important, clearly. And I think, you know, Todd laid out a very good framework for this. Uh, you know, the article I linked to is just something that FC had published, I guess it was August 1st, on the fragility of JADC2. And, and I think, you know, it's important. This is a work in process. Um, <clears throat> the contractors are certainly talking about it as a market opportunity, but you know, no one's really been able to size the market or say how fast it's going to grow. Um, so I think that's kind of an important um, feature to keep in mind. And, and to Todd's point, you know, kind of, okay, how does this fit in with what's still going to be a very large um, infrastructure, basically, a networking communications infrastructure uh, that, you know, you, you can't throw a switch and, and change overnight. I do think it's interesting you know, new markets tend to invite new entrants in defense. And so, you know, to the extent there have been some contract awards, some fairly significant ones in this area, I'd point out to uh, Cometa, um, one of, it was an IDIQ contract recently, but basically for antennas um, that would be part of this whole network system. And, you know, they traditionally have not been a company that's done much in defense. 
you know, you'd really have to look at a lot of the legacy contractors to, to find uh, those, those types of products. But um, that'll be another strand that I think is going to be important in JADC2 is, is what kind of market opportunities does it open up for some of the newer contractors or, or non-traditional um, suppliers who want to get into the market? Um, there, there is a little bit, you know, what, what I found in some of the deeper conversations I've been having with folks is that there is an excess focus. And Todd, I want, I want you to handle this because you do uh, talk about data, but increasingly there is this realization that too much effort and emphasis is actually on the network and not as much emphasis is on the data, because if you get the data right, the networks piece of this will be easy, right? You can, you can carry it. You need to know what the it is and standardize the it, because one of the things that um, the war game that General Hyten discussed was that U.S. forces actually were remarkably vulnerable. And he said the key to future warfare is going to be forces that culturally can very rapidly get on a distributed cloud network, pull down what they need exactly uh, pull down exactly what they need, do so quickly before they get targeted uh, but, but by doing so. W walk us through the data piece of this, because not enough people seem to be talking about the data. They talk about the networks. They don't yeah. really talk about the data. And absent having a data strategy, the network piece of it gets is, is harder. Yeah. Or not and, as successful. You know and that's exactly right that you know one of the the things i point out in my paper and i call this the data processing element right it's one of the five elements that makes up your battle network data processing uh, and it's one of the most critically important but often overlooked parts of the battle network and that's where you analyze aggregate and synthesize data from lots of different sensor sources and that's what you use to actually make decisions and that's where you can, once you've got that environment, that data environment where you can pull in all these different piece parts of information together, that's where you can start to lay over it, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning type algorithms uh, that allow you to make decisions smarter and faster uh, and actually outpace your adversary, right? And you know, the, people keep talking about how we're going to, you know, apply, you know, artificial intelligence and machine learning uh, to the battlefield. This is where you actually do it. But if you can't get that data environment right, uh, then you're not going to be able to reap those advantages in the future. Uh, and so, yeah, I think it, it's absolutely critical. Now, you got to think about different ways of, you know, doing that, that data processing. One is a centralized, you know, cloud environment. Uh, and that's great for some applications where you can feed things back into the cloud. They can, you know, process and then, you know, the, the information that a decision maker needs can come out of it. Uh, but there are other applications where you either, you know, aren't going to have the comms necessarily to reach back to that data environment uh, or the latency, the time it takes for a signal to go and come back. Uh, is going to be too long. So in those cases, you're going to need at the edge processing power, right? And so that can be on some of your platforms. It can be co-located with sensors. It could be off board on another aircraft that's still within line of sight, right? So there's lots of ways of doing this and got to get creative here. And, you know, the Air Force and others have started thinking about this. You know, you look at like our, our tanker fleet, 
right? And, you know, we've got tankers up there that have lots of power capacity, have onboard storage uh, where they can put things. They even take, you know, pallets of cargo you can slide on and off. Uh, and in a conflict, they're going to be, you know, you know, loitering right outside the, uh, the threat space, right? With uh, stealthy aircraft and other aircraft coming back and forth to them. That could be a great place uh, to put not only comms nodes, but a data processing element. So you can do more at the edge uh, processing of that data uh, for time critical applications. So yeah, I think this is a really important area uh, that's got to get more attention. Um, Byron, do you know you spend um, a lot of time talking to uh, some of the more interesting people in this uh, ecosystem, uh, some of whom are in Silicon Valley, some of whom are innovators, some of whom are thinkers, and, and of course then uh, to uh, the industry and all of us here in Washington. Are, do, do you get a sense that there... So what's the disconnect between what the smartest people are telling us we need to do and the rhetoric that we're hearing from folks, because again, we we don't really have an AI strategy. We don't really have a data strategy. We don't really have a quantum strategy, right? And one would argue all of these things are absolutely integral to do what it is we need to do, right? I mean, it's it's one thing to talk about programs, as, as Todd said. It's another to get to the foundational elements of how to get this right. Are we spending enough time on those foundational elements rhetorically or otherwise from your standpoint? Um, I'll, I'll pick up on two strands. I think one, and Todd certainly knows a lot about this too, you know, part of it is the way we acquire software. Um, I think that's an area that that fundamentally has to change, you know, if JADC2 is, is really going to be realized. Um, the other point, I think, is, is a degree of classification on this. And you know, this is not a problem that is unique to the Department of Defense. Uh, there have been, I've heard some really interesting presentations on, you know, basically how there, there are products out there in the oil field services industry, which also, if you look at oil wells, wellheads, <clears throat> they're disparate manufacturers with disparate data. And there are products that basically take all that data, synthesize it and present it in a common picture so you can see how what's what's actually going on in in an oil oil wheel field. So, you know, but but again, if this is all highly classified, the department is not really sharing uh, where it can what some of the problems are that it's going to solve. I think it, it'll be behind. Frankly, it'll be behind the commercial sector, and it may well be behind our adversaries because you've got to believe our adversaries are thinking, and our competitors are thinking along the same lines. And a quick word from our sponsors, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage and Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage, Huntington Ingalls Industries uh, and General Electric Marine sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's annual Sea Airspace Conference and trade show last week. Todd, you're, um, and I don't want you uh, to, to sort of share anything uh, that, uh, you know, obviously that's, that's private, but your uh, former boss, uh, Dr. Kath Hicks, is uh, the Deputy Defense Secretary right now. Uh, I know that the administration is working hard uh, on the national security strategy as well as the national defense strategy or a new 
updated versions of both. We should say, uh, you know, in, in, in fairness, large elements of what was uh, the much lauded 2018 Trump national security strategy was actually large elements of that were the Obama strategy before it that started to highlight the importance of great power competition. It became a lot more explicit about China, uh, obviously, and, and had another uh, a series of important elements to it. And this administration looks like it's going to take an even tougher and more organized line on, on, on China. Is there, what's your sense on how the new team, and, and obviously we can talk about this in a minute, right? There are not enough folks who are yet in the building, right? In terms of the political uh, appointees, it's, it's great that Carlos del Toro uh, was confirmed by the Senate uh, and is on the job over in the Pentagon. So that's good news. We have all, all three service secretaries in place but a lot of other jobs unfilled. Do you get a sense that the administration is going to be focusing on tackling some of the foundational, right? I mean, doing the hard work absent which all you have are programs flying in, in loose formation. Yeah, no, I'm, I think there's recognition uh, that these are tough issues that need to be dealt with. Uh, and you know whether or not they will deal with them, you know, I, I can't say for sure, but I'll tell you this, that you're making a decision on how you're going to approach it, whether you consciously and overtly make that decision or not, right? And so when it comes to JADC2, um, if they don't deal with it, if they don't deal in particular with the roles and missions question of who's got the lead on this uh, and who's got the lead on which parts of this, um, if they don't deal with that in this next strategy review, which roles and missions is supposed to be part of it, um, then, you know, the de facto is that they are giving an answer. And that answer is we're going to let everyone do their own thing and they'll build their own stovepipe networks and they're fine with that. Right. Uh, so one way or another, they are going to make a decision on this. Uh, it's just a question of whether or not they're going to consciously um, deal with this. Byron, any last thoughts on this, or do you want to just move uh, to the Hermes deal uh, and why you think that was so important, right? Not a lot of money from the United States Air Force, but potentially something that, that bears watching from, from your standpoint. Well, again, it, it's kind of like JADC2. You know, a lot of contractors have highlighted hypersonics as a, a major market growth area. Uh, Raytheon Technologies, you know, that was one of the, the rationale, quite frankly, for the deal uh, that put together UTC and Raytheon. And then last week, Lockheed Martin had a virtual investor day, and that's one of the segments that they drilled down on where they, they see a lot of opportunity going forward. Um, you know, and then last week, the AFWorks uh, awarded $60 million to Hermius, which is a, basically a hypersonic startup. They're talking about a reusable Mach 5 platform. And it kind of goes back to the early comment about new markets, new entrants. It's just intriguing, you know, where, where would that kind of product potentially fit in, <clears throat> potentially as a strike weapon, um, if, if it's a reusable um, system and, and you can deliver effects that way. Uh, you know, it might, it might yet be a challenge to um, some of the major programs or record that are currently being explored. And as it said, Hermes is not exactly a household defense name, but, but $60 million is a pretty big bet, certainly by AFWorks. 
um, and and certainly right uh, important uh, role that AFWorks plays is to identify these opportunities and to put that venture capital uh, that could uh, bear fruit. I think we need to be doing this, by the way, in a far more organized fashion than we're doing it. If you look at how InQtel does this, virtually every important startup, including the most game changing ones there's think you tell money in it and it's a much more organized uh, way of, of doing it. And I think, uh, you know, you've got so many different organizations and so many different places all doing it at what point, at what point uh, might, might you not be getting as much bang uh, for, 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 for your buck. Uh, Todd, I know that you track hypersonics as well. I mean, Lockheed unfortunately had uh, two hypersonic test failures, which I think came up in the, in the course of its uh, uh, conference call, earnings call as well, Byron, if, if, if I recall, right? I mean, one time the weapon didn't come off the wing, and then a couple of months later, later the, the weapon came, came off the wing, didn't light, and ended up at the bottom of the ocean. Uh, Todd, from, from your standpoint, um, how, are, how is it you're looking at the hypersonic portfolio as, as well? Uh, I should give a shout out to Dr. Mark Lewis, who's at the Emerging Technologies Institute at NDIA, where John Hyten spoke. He was brought into the last administration in order to help sort of bring more rhyme and reason to the whole hypersonic portfolio and, and everything he did, unfortunately, remains or fortunately remains extremely classified. Uh, but anybody who knows Mark Lewis knows he's one of the nation's sharpest minds on this stuff. Todd? Yeah, no, I would just say that, you know, we we talk a lot about the need to push the limits on technology to go faster in particular. Um, and part of doing that uh, is having failures and having setbacks. And, you know, it's it's not really a failure as long as you keep moving forward. Right. If you take it as, oh, well, we got to give up uh, or that was a bad idea. Let's scrap the whole thing. Uh, then yes, it's a failure and you wasted your time, you wasted money. Um, but I think, you know, when it comes to hypersonic weapons, um, you know, we are going to see setbacks from time to time. That's fine. That should be accepted, uh, that that's going to happen. And, and that is true really across a lot of defense acquisition programs. Um, if we want to go, if we want to move faster, if we want to move the, at the speed that commercial companies are moving in a lot of other areas, then you got to be willing to fail, fail big, fail publicly, uh, and keep pressing ahead uh, with it. Um, but you know, I, I think also I would, as I've said before on your program, Vago, you know, we should dampen some of the expectations about the role hypersonic weapons will play in our future force. Uh, they are not a silver bullet. Uh, it's not something that you're ever going to try to acquire or use in very high volumes. This is not a new JDAM or anything like that. Right. Uh, these are exquisite weapons that are, are going to be used against exquisite high value fleeting targets, right? Uh, and so just temper expectations that there's a certain role, a, a somewhat niche role that these weapons play, but it's an important one. And so it's technology we need to move forward with. Um, uh, I, I couldn't agree with you more, right? But I mean, it will be used against those high value targets, whether they're aircraft carriers, forward bases, uh, there's area denial capabilities and in um, military inventory that uh, as your colleague, uh, Mark Kansian has so thoughtfully written and Jim Hasek and uh, Mark uh, joined us week before last for this conversation on military mobilization, right? We just don't have those assets, nor are we likely to build them. It's reminiscent of the discussion that I know Frank Kendall used to have when he was ATNL. Frank's now obviously uh, Secretary of the United States Air Force. Frank used to say, well, what if 
a war is not as short and sharp as we think, but more prolonged. And we just don't have the volume yeah. of things to use. How do we repair them? How do we build them in the event that the conflict is prolonged? And I think Mark is, is on a real great point here. We have a tendency of actually not having a lot of, of, of spare inventory. Mothball forces uh, fleet is relatively small. We have a tendency of sinking ships uh, when we retire them, as opposed to looking at it as, hey, a ship is better than no ship. A, a 105 equipment, one tank may be better than no tank uh, at all. But by well, I, I would, uh, yeah, I would add to that, that, you know, part of the way that you help mitigate uh, the attrition effect in a, a prolonged conflict uh, is better defenses. Uh, and when it comes to hypersonics, I'm actually more concerned about adversary hypersonic weapons than I am about us having our own hypersonic weapons. So I think, you know, missile defense against hypersonic threats should be very high up on that priority list that we've got to build more robust crews and hypersonic missile defense so that we can protect our forces so that we, you know, aren't as vulnerable uh, to a protracted conflict where we've lost a lot of major platforms. Um, I, I uh, agree with you. Now you're uh, mirroring your colleague, other colleague, Tom, uh, Dr. Tom Carrico. Uh, <laughs> Byron, uh, I, I want to get to the budgetary discussion, but very briefly, Byron, I mean, how much, right? I mean, all of the defense contractors are under enormous pressure to keep uh, margins uh, as high as possible, even if they become controversial, they're very popular on the street. Investors want returns. Uh, and ultimately, you know, these test cycles, you and I had a conversation with a mutual friend that these test cycles are actually a lot slower than they need to be because of litigation, right? When contractor has a problem, it, well, it wasn't my fault. Here's why it wasn't my fault, you know, um, and then the lawyers take over. And then a month later, there's another flight test, whereas historically, we've tended to move with remarkable speed. And at the end of the day, everybody understands that there are, there are lessons learned uh, in, 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 in the process. Are we organized to move faster? Or is this just, you know, is this, you know, wishful thinking more than anything else? Because at the end of the day, it, it falls to corporate uh, general counsels and military services or acquisition uh, force uh, lawyers, you know, as opposed to saying, hey, I screwed up, got it, we'll do this better next time. And we'll do the next test in two days. It's, you know, everybody goes Obari Kod and um, talking to look, look, I had a professor ages ago who, you know, used to comment that uh, militaries are, are a reflection of the societies that field them. So the fact that defense is litigious shouldn't at all be a surprise uh, <laughs> to anybody who looks at American society. And so, you know, and, and maybe the point is, I don't think you're at a point in time or place where there's a security crisis that has so overwhelmed that litigious, litigious part of society. Um, so I don't expect it would be, sure, can there be more leadership? You know, probably what you need, and we've talked about this before, I just think you need to up the funding for some of this stuff um, and, and test more frequently. The, the lawyers are going to do what lawyers are going to do. And frankly, you know, and it's, it's the same with you know, protests, awards on contracts. Um, it's just, I don't know what's really going to change it in, in the kind of environment that we, we live in today in, in a different security environment where there's a sharper challenge, you know, at the door, um, maybe it'll change, but I wouldn't hold a whole lot of hope out for that today. 
we're looking at a $1.2 trillion infrastructure measure. Uh, it looks like we have a filibuster-proof margin of about 70 votes, which is great. The United States Senate might actually work. Question is whether or not the House will follow and whether or not Republican lawmakers are going to go because uh, go along with the Democratic plan to put that $1.2 trillion as part of a broader $3.5 trillion uh, uh, legislative uh, package. Uh, this is uh, an ongoing uh, thing. Chuck Schumer has said everybody stays in town until we get this sorted out. It remains to be clear, remains to be seen whether we're going to sort it out. Where are we right now? Where are we going? What does it all mean? Whichever one of you wants to take it. You're right. To, it looks like the Senate will pass the infrastructure package. Now, uh, the Senate also, the Senate Democrats released their budget resolution today. And then the other kind of breaking news was uh, the budget resolution did not include uh, an increase to the debt ceiling. So that kind of throws a whole nother interesting uh, dynamic to what Washington is going to have to deal with <clears throat> really in probably the September, October, November timeframe. Um, you know, the fact the Senate passes it, okay, it's good. You know, maybe there is some bipartisanship after all, uh, but it's really not clear at this point how the House is going to handle uh, the infrastructure package. You know, are, are the are the votes there to pass it? Um, and I, I expect there is an amendment that was added. Um, it was Senator Shelby um, Wicker and Inhofe that added about fifty point four billion dollars for broadly defined defense infrastructure. That's kind of a new twist uh, in, in the Senate bill. Um, and the debt ceiling, you know, I, I will probably have some temporary extensions on it. I mean, you know, we, we've kind of been to that uh, drama before. I just don't think anybody is foolish enough to allow the U.S. to default on its treasury obligations, but that that's going to add a little bit more drama to how this whole thing plays out. And so, as much as um, there's some optimism, you know, we've kind of gotten this far. Um, I suppose there's still a risk that, uh, you know, the, the bipartisan infrastructure bill could fall apart, as could the reconciliation package that got rolled out today. Um, I, I should point out that's the, how we got into the Budget Control Act mess. See, I had to jump, jump ahead of you on that one, uh, Todd. Thoughts? Yeah, no, I was going to I was going to bring that up that uh, we, we did uh, come pretty close to defaulting on our obligations uh, about 10 years ago. Um, so I would just say that, you know, pay attention to the debt ceiling, um, not so much as a direct threat to the defense budget like it was, you know, in 2011 when we got the Budget Control Act. I think it's more uh, we should pay attention to it in terms of timing of when we're going to get appropriations passed um, because they've got to deal with that the debt ceiling um, you know they're, they're trying to deal with the infrastructure bill first and then deal with the debt ceiling uh, and so the longer these things uh, drag out uh, into you know september october november uh, then the longer we're going to have to wait uh, ultimately you know in getting appropriations enacted i think the other thing to keep in mind on the infrastructure bill is, as Byron pointed out, yeah, it looks like it's going to pass the Senate. Um, you still got to get through the House. And then there's the president. The president has said some things that were, you know, a little confusing before uh, about, you know, what he would sign and what he wouldn't and, you know, how it had to be a package uh, that came to his desk. Uh, and so I think we've you know, got to keep an eye on this. It is not across the finish line yet. 
Not at all. Byron, uh, what are some things folks should have on their radar screens through the week? There is a Space and Missile Defense Symposium in Huntsville, Alabama this week. That's an annual event. I think it'll be interesting if there's any incremental uh, commentary that comes out, uh, particularly in regard to China's uh, strategic nuclear modernization program and, and how that, that's, it's early right now, but it's, it's clearly a new factor that I think is going to play into this debate. Um, there's a Senate Foreign Affairs, Foreign Relations Committee hearing on Middle East security um, that might be of interest. And that may dovetail with the news that's coming from Afghanistan, which looks like that place is uh, maybe headed to a, a, a darker time sooner than, than uh, even people had been assuming a couple of weeks ago. The speed with which uh, Afghan forces have, have crumbled and uh, the bloodshed that this is going to cause is, is I think, going to get people's attention. Oh, and I forgot to mention that the Green Book is out. Ah, and uh, quick quick points on, on Green Book. Anything that jumps out at you or you want to save it till Friday? There's obviously nothing beyond FY22. You know, they haven't tag the uh, the excel workbook so hopefully when they post the excel stuff that's going to make my life a little easier but uh the green book is out for people who are interested in that stuff uh, no nobody nobody uh, said that being a first rung and i'm t- speaking to two first rung analysts nobody promised you guys a rose garden <laughs> <laughs> but at least we get a green book <laughs> yes, yes a green garden <laughs> you know there's just a little bit of sadness associated with that. But I, I, I have to say, I too am excited. So I guess I've been in Washington a little too long. Guys, thanks very much. Really, uh, really appreciate it. Always a pleasure having you both on. Thanks a lot. Thanks, thanks as always, Fargo. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report and check us out on LinkedIn and stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship and we'll see you again tomorrow.